Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is August 4th, 2015, and this is episode 1617 of the Survival Podcast. And we are going to go into part three of the Bow Hunting Deer series. Today's episode is called Bow Hunting Deer Part 3, Deer Down. Now what? And there will actually be a fourth part to this, which will be all about cooking venison and preparing venison and making things like sausage out of venison, etc. Uh, but today we are just going to talk about getting that deer from the forest floor, uh, cut up into appropriate sized pieces, doing that properly, not ruining our meat, actually making the meat as, as top quality as it can be, uh, dealing with the entire situation from the point that we've lost sight of the deer, you know, we think it's down, We need to find it, and we need to retrieve it, and we need to bring it home. How do we do that safely? How do we do that in a way that preserves the quality of the animal, etc.? Complying with, with laws, not getting ourselves in trouble, all that good stuff. We'll talk about all that in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Chef Keith Snow. Chef Keith is an awesome guy. He's a member of our expert council, long-term sponsor of the show, and he just has an awesome website. If you get over to HarvestEating.com, you're going to find all kinds of great stuff. First, you can find the stuff that he sells, his organic teas, his spices, seasoning mixes, and other products. I use Chef Keith's spices and seasoning mixes on a daily basis, pretty much. Uh, if I'm not re reaching for uh, the northern Italian, I'm probably reaching for low and slow or Montana steak or the new prime rib stuff or the chicken curry. It's just all awesome. He also teaches you how to focus on the technique over the recipe and cooking, how to make cooking a life skill, how to cook seasonally and locally. He's got a lot of great videos on his website, a lot of great blog posts, a lot of great recipes, and he's got an awesome podcast. You can find it all at HarvestEating.com. And remember, Chef Keith is a member of our expert council. If you have a question about cooking, you get it into me, and we'll get you an answer for it on a Friday show. Chef Keith Snow at HarvestEating.com, long-term sponsor, great partner, great fellow prepper, and just one of the most awesome guys you'll ever meet. Check out his website again today at HarvestEating.com. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, westernbotanicals.com. Um, I am a big believer in going to herbs before going to conventional medicines, be they prescription drugs, over-the-counter, I don't care. Um, I have personally found that herbs are a more gentle way to treat uh, the acute symptoms and chronic symptoms that we all deal with on a daily basis. Now, I'm not a doctor and I don't prescribe treatments, and I never claim to. And the people at Western Botanicals, while they are a chiropractic facility, also don't make medical recommendations. They simply provide the highest quality herbs, raw herbs, and herbal supplements, and other things like essential oils for your own use. And they're real people that really care about you, and if you pick up the phone and call them, someone in Utah, not New Delhi, will answer the phone and help you make the right decisions for yourself. 
That's what Western Botanicals is all about. They are a great sponsor. They have been with us a very long time, six-plus years. That is that is forever in the world of podcasting. They also have a program called their Premium Membership Program where they give a 25% discount on everything they sell. They sell that membership for $50 a year every day. If you are a member of our support brigade, you get that membership absolutely free. All you have to do is call them up, give them the code word in your MSB account, and they will set up your account for you so you can get 25% off on everything they sell. Some of the favorite things that I use by them are the turmeric formula. Uh, that is one of the best anti-inflammatory things that I've ever used personally for myself. Again, I can't make individual personal recommendations on it, but I can tell you that I use it and it works for me. If my back is sore and achy, if my shoulder's acting up from an old injury from the military uh, after a hard day working, I go to that. Their deep heat ointment is another great thing for that. They have a pain relief formula that uses valerian. Those are things I personally use on a regular basis. There's a lot of other really great things there. Basically, guys, if it's herbal and it's legal, you can find it at Western Botanicals, where their goal is to create an herbalist in every home, to empower you not only to use their formulas, but to give you the raw herbs and the ingredients you need to make your own herbal formulations, including how to use the herbs from your own backyard and then get the parts for the formulation you need from them and the extra materials and the knowledge from them. You can get everything at westernbotanicals.com. Check them out today. Again, westernbotanicals.com. And if you're an MSB member, do not forget to get your premium membership 25% off everything they sell every day of the year. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year, of course, being 1617. I have King Louis XIII and the Hero Generation. I also have Sir Francis Bacon and the Injustice of Accepting Gifts. That's the one I'm going to talk about today because I have a modern example of exactly what Alex is talking about. The, this year, Sir Francis, Sir Francis Bacon is appointed Lord Keeper of the Great Seal. Essentially, he will use his power to maintain business monopolies for the favorites of King James I of England. He is what is called in the modern day a company man, in polite company, that is. He will eventually fall out of favor and retire to his estate to write lengthy books on the scientific method. He will also discover himself in many ways and repent of what he's doing right now, but that is for later years. For now, he will be dispensing the best justice that money can buy. My take by Alex Trug. Sir Francis Bacon is considered an ethical man for his time. That is a somewhat backhanded compliment. Government officials didn't make a lot of money, so it became custom for them to accept gifts. These gifts were not necessarily bribes, and one can see where it might lead. Modern justice requires not only that justice be done, but justice appear to be done. That is often a difficult task, made all the more difficult when a judge accepts a gift or a promise of a cushy job after retirement. Nevertheless, it seems ridiculous to require that the people that make the report uh, require that people make a report when one is given a coffee mug in appreciation because it exceeds a certain monetary value. But no one need not report except but one need not report accepting sexual favors from a lobbyist. The North Carolina Ethics Committee recently ruled that a lobbyist can offer sexual favors to government officials because it's impossible to put a monetary value on sex. If that is true, then prostitutes have been doing something impossible for centuries now. I'm exaggerating a little here, but not by much. You can read the article cited below. You can read that article if you want to. It's at tspwiki.com with all these great uh, history segments from Alex. Let me talk about a recent example of this. It's a couple years ago only. It was a judge. It was either in Wisconsin or Michigan. I don't remember which, but it was a case involving raw milk. And this judge came down on the side of big industry. Not only did he do that, he also stated that 
and this was an illegal opinion issued by a court, so this is now effectively legal precedent in our country, that you, as an individual human being, do not have a right to decide what goes into your body. So if you want to drink raw milk, you have no fundamental right to be able to do that. That was his ruling from the bench. A lot of people were up in arms about it. <clears throat> a few weeks later, people were far more upset because the transparency was so in your face. This judge, who had not retired, he simply decided he didn't want to be a judge anymore, resigned his judgeship. Huh, no problem there, except what was his new job? He was employed with a great salary, far more than he ever made as a lowly public servant, as a lobbyist, as a judge, attorney before he was a judge, lobbyist, Washington, D.C., K Street, seems like a good place for him to go. What's wrong with that? The, the lobbying firm has one client, Monsanto. That's the rest of that story, and that's a perfect example of what's wrong with our country right there. The, the fact that people can do that is what's wrong with our country. Um, I know people say, well, as an anarchist, Jack, you don't want any kind of regulation of anything like that. Oh, but it's all the other regulating they do now, isn't it? Let's think about Sir Francis Bacon. He was the Lord Keeper of the Great Seal. What that meant is he got to decide who got to do what. So if you wanted to compete uh, in, 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 under the, you know, the auspices of the king, under the, the, the British Empire that's beginning to build at this time, and do anything you know, within the king's control, you had to get a seal, a stamp that says, okay, you're allowed to do this. So it wasn't so much did he let people, but he prevented people from competing with them. This is another form of gilding. Gilding, uh, for all the auspices we pay it in permaculture about companion planning and stuff like that, is about limiting. That's what guilds do. They limit. They don't just provide mutual support, but they limit what else can enter. And that's what this is, is using government force to guild and control who can do what, how many can do something, thereby reducing free market competition and preserving excessive profit for the few, the chosen, those who will bribe. That's my take by Jack Spierko. Uh, this is uh, Tuesday, so we're going to take a look at the plant of the week. Every week, Bob Wells brings us a new plant that we can uh, put in our backyard to help feed ourselves. This week, we have the Mayha tree, which is adaptable from zone 6 to 9. Uh, the Mayha tree is a small native fruit tree. Showy tree is primarily found in bottomland along the river's edge. It's known for a love of water, but will grow well in your yard or your home garden as well, with a caveat if you live in a moist climate or you provide irrigation. I'm going to add that in there. The Mayha produces best in partial, uh, partial to full sun locations. It's self-fertile. Small cranberry-like fruits are highly prized for making the best jellies, preserves, and syrups. Eaten fresh, it tastes like a crab apple. Mayha jelly has been a delicacy in the southeast for generations, and the Mayha tree will make a fine addition to your landscape. Plant your Mayha tree in a prominent spot to show off its beautiful pure white early blossoms, attractive red berries that appear in May. Find this plant more at BobWellsNursery.com. Bob Wells Nursery specializes in edible landscape plants, including fruit trees, berry plants, vine fruit, nut trees, as well as other hard-to-find specialty fruits as the doggo nuts because I think the restaurant people are here to pick up our duck eggs uh, in, in their order for the week. So I'm going to pause while the dogs calm down. Anyway, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade if you like our show and want to help support what we do and get discounts on stuff you're probably buying anyway. That's all I'll say about it today. Uh, you can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. So let's get into uh, 
Bow Hunting Deer Part 3. Let me take you back to the end of Part 2. And the end of Part 2, you might want to listen, if you haven't heard them, the other two parts to this series before listening to this one in full, though I think this, this one you could, you could go back and be fine. Um, there's not a lot in this one that really ties in except a few things that's in the kit that's in the first episode from last year um, where you kind of maybe get thrown back to some of the items in the kit for their use as it comes to fruition here. But in the end of the last episode, a deer had come into my area. I had gotten to full draw, had a little bit of a hang-up with her pausing behind uh, some cover, uh, almost getting caught but not getting caught on full draw. I'd released the arrow. I'd made a good shot. The deer ran off, I lost sight of her, and I said, and then I heard, and I left you with a cliffhanger. So you'll have to tune back in next week, and here it is, three weeks later, I finally got around to do it, but there was vacation in between and stuff like that, so uh, I'm sorry. But what I heard was the best sound you can ever hear uh, when you're an archery hunter, especially if the deer's out of sight. And most of the time, in my experience with archery hunting, unless you're in a big open field where you can see for really long distances... Um, deer tend not to fall over where you can see them. There's always, you know, or not always, but often tracking involved. They do seem to make some pretty good time and some pretty good speed and some pretty good space before they succumb to the shot, even when it's a really good shot. But the sound I heard was a loud crash down on the ground. And then this sound. Okay? That's the deer kick, right? That's a deer that's down. And its legs are kicking and it's expiring. And that last little is where that leg just stiffens out and it just goes limp and it's done. At that point, 99,999 times out of a, you know, uh, 100,000, you have a deer that's dead, right? Yes, one time in 100,000, that deer might not be completely dead if you hear that sound. Um, but, You should always wait a little bit before following up anyway, just to make sure that deer is fully expired. The What I want to cover with you now, though, is the most important things to do after the shot. Again, when you take a shot in archery, it's different than a gun. You should have your eyes on the impact point, the, the part that you're shooting at. Of the deer, not you should not be looking at the deer. You should be looking at a spot about the size of a dime on the on the on the body of the deer. Your eyes should stay on that spot, and your arrow should be very close to it. Which means you should see the arrow all the way into the target. You should see the arrow fly into the target. Even these really fast dual cam bows and stuff like that, you can still see that arrow impact. You should hear it too. You can often hear it, and you should watch that arrow impact in. And usually you get, with these bows today, pass-through shots. Not always, and we'll talk about that in a bit as well. And you need to mark in your mind and with landmarks really three things. The point of where the deer was at the shot. As soon as that shot's off and that deer starts running, you need to think, okay, that, that, that tree with the broken branch, that's right where the deer was standing when I hit it and you're watching it. And as you're watching that deer run, you're looking for any place where it stumbles or falters. And if it stumbles or falters, pick something in your head and say, okay, there's that, that rub on that tree. Okay, there's that other branch that she stumbled there. And then the most important thing, where is the last place before you lose eyesight, where you can't see the deer anymore? Sometimes this can be 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 yards, 100 yards. 
Um, in, in, the, in the bush, it's usually less, you know, 30, 40 yards is about good visibility in a lot of places, depending on how late in the year. If it's early in deer season, there's a lot of leaf left on the tree. You can't see as far as toward the end of, of bow season in most states where you have a lot more leaf down. You know, where are you? In a field. But in the, in the bush, generally, you can only see so far. And you really need to lock into your mind the last place you saw that deer. Because if you can pick up blood there, you have the one place you can pick up blood or hair or other sign that is the closest to where that deer is based on eyesight, where you saw it last. The stumbles are really important because if that deer stumbles, it's because it's, it's been injured. And when it does, it's usually going to pulse blood out. And you'll usually find really good sign wherever you see a stumble or even a fall and a get back up, something like that. There's times, like I shot one deer, it was actually my second deer, and if you want to see the first deer I ever shot, and first deer I ever shot with a bow and first deer period, um, there's a pretty grainy old picture from when I was 13 years old with this doe um, on, the, on the front of the, uh, of the episode today. Actually, it wasn't the next year. The next year I shot a seven-point buck, and the year after that I shot a spike buck in archery season. When I shot that spike buck, he was only about 10 yards from my stand, and I could only see him for about seven feet before he disappeared again. It was in these really thick laurels. So sometimes all of those things you can't do. There is no place you can see the deer stumble. There is no, you know, you're just in really thick stuff. You can't see the last. So then you're listening and trying to think in your mind the direction of travel that that animal went. And then the spot of the shot becomes very, very important. So we've done that. We've marked those places in our mind. Now we're going to give it some time. We're not going to get down out of the tree stand or come out of the blind. We're going to sit back, and I'm going to guarantee you you're on an emotional high. And what you need to be doing now is restating in your mind. That's where the deer was shot. That's where it stumbled. That was the last place I saw it. Over and over again, concrete lock in your mind, those locations. And it makes a lot of sense to... Mark them as quickly as possible. And your marker here, your best marker for this, your toilet paper that was in your kit, in case you had to go number two, right? That said to pack way more than you needed because it would be helpful at some point, and this is where. So a big clump right where the shot was, a big clump right where you saw the stumble, a big clump right in the last spot, especially if you found some blood there or some sign. These, these are really important areas if you lose the trail and need to go back and try to refine it. What we're really looking for for a good sign is blood and hair. Those are the two things. And I'll talk about some other things you can find when you get into kind of a sticky wicket, so to speak, uh, that can save the day sometimes. But those are your two best signs. I mean, you can look for, you know, dug up from where the, 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 uh, the tracks were, where they're digging in as they're running really fast and things like that. The thing is, if you're in a high-traffic area, just because you see a place where a deer clearly made a footprint doesn't mean it's your deer. Right? So... You have to really kind of look at that type of sign is when it leaves the deer trails and you see it go through like fallen leaf litter. Sometimes you can see a literal path through fallen leaf litter from that animal running. But generally blood and hair is what you're looking for. And always be looking ahead. Look for the rump, the, you know, the outline of the deer. Understand it's not going to be standing up. Obviously it's laying down. And generally when I track, I track with a knocked arrow unless I'm dead certain that deer went down. Because it's very possible that you'll get there and you see this animal struggling or getting up or running. Or I've even been in one situation where it wasn't me that took the shot, but another person took the shot. 
the deer actually was standing as though there was nothing wrong with it, even though it had been hit. It had been hit a little bit further back. The arrow was a pass-through shot. That's usually a little less traumatic than where the arrow is still in the animal because the arrow is not continuing to cut. Uh, it had been hit just at the back of the liver. It probably would have bled out anyway. But when we walked up on the animal, it was so confused and disoriented, it was just standing 25 yards away. And the individual I was helping track simply took another shot and was able to take the animal out. So a lot of times I'll track with a knocked arrow. You have to be careful when you do that. It is far more possible to hurt yourself. It's really a great idea if you have a buddy that one person track and one person stay back and off to the side so you don't walk into your buddy and stab him with a broadhead, but the other person have the knocked arrow. Um, you don't always have to do this, but if I didn't hear the crash and the kick, that's what I'm going to do. Because I don't want to lose that opportunity in trying to dequiver an arrow should it come up. Um, but eventually you're going to pick up the trail. You find and mark any stumbles. Last place you had a visual. And every time you find blood or hair, put a little piece of toilet paper down on the ground. And when you look at a leaf and there's a spot on it, and you're not sure, is that a, is that a droplet of blood or is that just a leaf mold? Take a little piece of toilet paper and touch it. Turn it over. You'll know. That's, that's why toilet paper is so valuable, and toilet paper is biodegradable. You don't have to worry about leaving it behind. It, it, the next rainfall, it'll be gone. So that's another reason I prefer to use it for, for this type of, uh, of, of thing. Um, if all goes well, you're going to pick up a trail and find the animal. And, and, and that's the best case scenario. Let's talk about some times where it's not as easy. One is just you, you shot the deer toward the end of the day, and as you're tracking it, nightfall comes and it starts to get dark. This is where it's a real good idea to have a flashlight that has blue light or a blue lens cover. Blue light makes blood and other bodily fluids, as you might have learned from CSI and other TV shows like that, glow in the dark. It doesn't quite glow like phosphorescent light, but it does show up pretty well. So a lot of times you can find blood better in the dark with a blue light. So that's one tip. Another tip is to look for what you would do if you were the animal and didn't understand what was going on. And for, so one example of this is I was with I was hunting with my uncle and he shot a deer and he he hit it well but not perfectly and. The deer, eventually we stopped finding blood. It went from a lot of blood to a little blood to little pinpricks of blood. That's always a bad sign. But we knew he had hit some lung because another thing we did find is we found some foamy pink blood. Uh, when you see foamy pink blood, that's usually blood that's coming out of the nose of the animal. And that's because the lungs are filling. So we're like, okay, this is a mortal hit. This animal has to be dead at this point. It's been long enough, but we lost the trail. We couldn't really figure out where she went. And then I, I remembered that down toward the bottom of the ravine, there was a creek. And this is now it's pretty dark, especially in the woods. It was, yeah, you could still see decent if you weren't in the woods, but in the woods, it was full on dark. So we go down to the creek and we just start looking up and down the creek. And the reasoning was if you had something wrong with your lungs and you were a deer and didn't know what it was, you would feel like you're burning, possibly, and you'd go for water. And it turned out she had gone for water. She had drank. She'd begin to bleed again, but not much. But this was a pretty deep creek. And just on a whim, I got down on my stomach and started shining the light across the other side of the creek. And as I did that, I came upon a point where you could see water glistening on the leaves. 
and we just followed the water glistening on the leaves, and it was only 30 yards from the creek that this deer was laying dead, but it was kind of just over the next thing, where just walking around in the woods in the dark trying to find it would have been very hard to find without a lot of blood. When she drank water, it actually further aided in stopping the blood flow for some reason, whether it was because she got in it and washed the, the blood that was dripping off her body off or whatever. But there was very little blood for a good 15, 20 yards from the creek, but the water picked it up. So there's always something that's, that's different. And tracking is a skill, and what I'll tell you is the better you make your shot, the better hit you have, um, the less tracking you're going to have to do. And the easier the tracking you're going to do. If you put an arrow solidly through both lungs or nick the top of the heart, you're going to have blood to follow. Because it's just going to pour out of both sides of the animal. It's, it's not going to be hard. It's when you take certain shots that sometimes are good shots to take and you have to take them that you get less blood. For instance, the second deer I ever shot, the seven-point buck I mentioned, was traveling almost directly away from me. And I had to shoot much further back, almost back by the hip angling the arrow forward and basically going between the lungs. And uh, that deer, fortunately, it was toward the end of the season. My uncle was rattling. That's what attracted him. And he probably made it 75 yards before he stumbled. And when he stumbled, there was a big white, like, fungus on the tree, like, like you know, like fungus on this old rotted hickory. So we went right to that tree, and we found a lot of blood. And then, like all people learning, you know, always improving their tracking skills, uh, we went back to try to find blood up to that tree, and we never found any. And that's another thing I'll tell you. If you know you've got blood somewhere, and you've got time, and in our case it wasn't going to be dark anytime soon, and you're pretty sure your deer's down, and you've got blood at a point, but you, maybe that point's 50 yards from the shot, track back and see if you can find anything. Because there's, there's something I've left out so far I'll cover in a second. But also, if you can find blood, you learn a lot about what you what you hit, where you got the animal. When you see like yellows and stuff like that, that's usually bad. That's stomach. Right When you see deep red blood, you're looking at arterial blood. You've either got a heart hit or you've hit one of the major arteries or something like that. Pink blood, you've got lung. When you've got really, really black-looking stuff, a lot of times you've got liver. And, and that's actually not a great hit, but that, that animal's going to bleed out in a reasonable amount of time. You should be able to find it. So that's one thing you're looking for. But you're also just looking, did this animal bleed in this, this period of time? That tells you a lot about how, how good the shot was, too. If there's a lot of blood in that 50-yard space, you know you're not far from finding it. If there's almost no blood and that first stumbles where it bled, it could be a little bit more complicated. That's what happened here. And what happened here is when it, when it stumbled, it, the arrow, of course, jostled around inside of it. And when that happened, it kind of backed out, cut into the lungs more, and it started bleeding off its back hip, and when we saw it make that turn after it stumbled, you could see blood on the outside of the deer, so we knew it was a good hit, but it didn't really drop much blood until that occurred, and then it was a relatively easy tracking job. So all these different things can happen. I don't say them to dishearten the, the future archery hunter. Just to say that when you make the shot, just because you made a good shot, doesn't mean your job's over, uh, even to the point if it's time to take out the knife now. It, the next job is to find that animal. And, and the, the more efficiently you work, the more methodically you work, the more you mark things in your mind and with you know toilet paper or whatever you use to mark things, the better. The other thing you're looking for in addition to blood and hair, water, mucus, all the stuff that could be animal sign, kicked up dirt, etc., places where the animal fell. If you see a plot where the animal fell, you almost always see a puddle of blood. You're looking for your arrow. In a perfect world... 
You go right to where you took the shot, and just to the other side of where the deer was, there's the arrow sticking up out of the ground because you got to pass through and it's buried into the ground or stuck in a tree or something like that. That's beautiful. That is one of the most beautiful things that you will ever see. If you have that, um, you almost always, unless you have a gut shot, you have a dead deer, and that deer is just waiting for you. It also removes a, a risk to you that I'll talk about in a second. Like You're not going to step on it. You're not going to cut yourself with it. There's the arrow. Let's retrieve it. And you, when you look at that arrow, it really gives you information. You can see by the color of the hair that's stuck to it, and there will be hair all over it, what part of the deer was hit. By the color of the blood, again, you know that deep red blood is what you really like to see. Pink, frothy blood. Both of those things are very, very good signs. Dark black. I mean, blood can start to turn black looking, but when it's fresh and still wet, if it's black, you're almost always looking at liver or some other organ. Yellowy, green, things like that, that's, that's you know, gut. And that's not good, unless... You know, you got to think about how a deer's anatomy works. There's times when you might hit further back, just like I was talking about, to pass through a lung. So if you have a straight broadside shot, though, you know, you shouldn't see those other colors. You should be dark red um, and, and pink frothy should be the things that you should be looking at. So I've got my arrow. I'm tr tracking the deer. Eventually we find the deer. So that's, that's when we can say at least... <sighs> This animal will not lay and rot. I did my job well right up till the end. And now I have to take control of the situation and, and get the animal out. Um, the thing is, though, a lot of hunters will now want to run up and see their prize. This is not what you should do. If you have a knocked arrow, leave it knocked. If you don't have a knocked arrow, knock an arrow. Walk up behind the deer, approaching it from the behind very, very slowly. When you get closer to the deer, you know, maybe use the tip of the arrow or the bow itself. You can re-knock your... If the animal hasn't gotten up at that point, it's probably not getting up. And if it does, it ain't going to get up fast. You know, and it's probably safer to re-knock the arrow at that point or just take the arrow, the loose arrow, touch the, touch the animal's rear end, see if there's any movement. If there's no movement, still come up from behind in the back and touch the eye. If an animal's alive at all, you're going to get some reaction when you touch his eye. Once you've done that you know you're not going to get hurt when you get down to deal with this animal. An animal that's down and not dead is very dangerous. It's going to freak out, uh, and you need to do the ethical thing and finish the job if that's the case. I have never, ever, ever come upon a deer laying down after being hit with an arrow that didn't try to get up as soon as you were near it that wasn't dead. But it doesn't mean it doesn't happen, and it's an extra two seconds to make sure you don't end up hurt, okay, and to make sure you've done your job properly. So always do that. So now we are to the point where we need to field dress this deer. Um, in most states, it is required of you that before you begin any further process that you take off your license tag, if you live in a state where you have to tag deer. Some states you, know, you have high limits or whatever, don't have to do this. But if you're required to put a tag on the animal itself, this is when you should tag the deer. And you do fill out your tag. Um, you don't just stick it on there. So you fill out your tag if, if your state requires. Again, this is different in every state. Uh, so now at this point, you've got the deer tagged. You've complied with the law. You're ready to get this animal ready to move out. If you're hunting on a ranch, uh, somebody's private property, you can get a four-wheeler in. Uh, you can make a case for just throwing the animal on there and, and doing the gutting and the skinning all back at camp, so to speak. For most of us hunting public property, etc., 
in the bush where you might be hundreds of yards to miles from where you can get a vehicle in, this doesn't make sense. There's so much weight in those guts, and the longer they're in there, the more chance you have of bloat and problems from bloat. So the best thing to do is get them out. I'm going to describe field dressing a deer in a podcast without any visual aids. This is difficult, so I found one of the better videos out there on how to gut a deer that I will put in the show notes if you want to watch it. Um, but the first thing you always want to do, if you can, if there's any slope, turn the deer so its butt is downhill. You don't want it sideways downhill because it's going to roll. And you don't want it you know, head downhill because when you, when you gut it, all the blood is going to run into the cavity instead of out of the cavity. This is where it's really great if you have a buddy um, to work with you to kind of grab the front legs and hold it. If you don't, one of the things you can do is take your drag rope, we'll talk about more in a minute, and, and go ahead and put it around the deer's neck now, early so to speak, and tie it to a tree uphill and pull it downhill, and that way it won't slide down on you when you're working. That's like function stacking of this material that we carry with us. And I carry a soft nylon five-foot piece of half-inch rope for a drag rope. That's a comfortable rope where if I can't find a good stick to tie it to to drag with, I can still make a loop in it and drag with it without it cutting into my hands. And any other thing I want to do with it, it's flexible. So I want the kind of nylon that's soft, not the really coarse, hard, hard-to-bend nylon. So either you got somebody holding it or it's not steep enough to worry about. Um, wow. The F-16 pilots are getting close to the house today, folks. Um, so you, you, you've got that all set up. you got the deer on its back. And what we want to do first is actually cut all kinds of sound effects today unplanned. You want to cut around the, the butthole, the colon, without cutting into the colon. So basically you're circling the butthole with your knife. You want a sharp, sharp knife for this. You want to basically free that up so that you could pull it out a bit or push it in a bit if you wanted to. It's kind of gross, but it's what you got to do to get the job done. That's all you need to do with it for now is 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 cut around that uh, that colon. You're then going to open the belly um, and you're going to start first by cutting the skin And if you have a female deer at this point, as you're doing this, you're going to want to try not cut to cut to not cut into um, the the milk uh, udder. You want to kind of cut behind that; it'll come right off. There's just a few things that need to be cut, so you kind of take that off as a unit and toss that to the side. If you have a male deer, you're going to remove the testicles and the penis by cutting around and pulling them out and cutting them off. And uh, at, at that point, you've now got this kind of open belly, right? So you've got the belly is still got the muscle on it, but the skin's open. So you're going to take the skin all the way up to where the, where the, the rib cage starts, to the breastbone. Then we're going to come back with the tip of the knife, cut into the belly cavity. And, and, and the best way to do this is you make a small hole down about where the, the belly button would be or a little bit below the belly button down toward the genitals in the, in the, uh, in the, the, the stomach wall. Uh, big enough to get the tip of your knife in and make that a little bit bigger. And as soon as you get it big enough to where you can do this, you stick your hand inside the deer and you put the, the knife blade up, not down so you don't cut your hand, and cut the stomach wall all the way up to the rib cage. 
guiding it with your hand. This way your hand is pushing the, the organs, the intestines, the stomach down and creating a pocket so you can cut. And if you have a sharp knife, the, 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 the stomach wall cuts, it's thin muscle, it cuts really, really, really easily. Little tip here, when you're cutting skin, unless you just need to get a start point, try not to cut from the outside. Hair dulls knives really, really quick. Get the tip of the knife under the skin and cut the skin from behind, and your knife will stay sharp for you a lot longer. So we've done that with the skin. Now we've done it with the stomach wall. At this point, what we've got is a smelly, steaming, open deer. Okay? It's graphic, but it's it's just the way that it's part of the job if you're going to do this. What you'll find now is the diaphragm. My, my uncle used to call them curtains. There's two curtains that you have to cut, is what he used to tell me. So you've got all of your lower organs, everything below the lungs, your liver, your kidney, your stomach, your intestines, and then right at the bottom of the ribs, there's these two curtains, which is the diaphragm. That's the muscle when you inhale, it goes down, and when you exhale, it comes up. That allows you to breathe. So... Sometimes this might have been punctured by the arrow, depending on the angle of the shot. Usually it's intact. And what you want to do is you take your knife and go along, and you cut both of them open. And when you do, you'll actually a lot of times hear air come out like, you cut those open. Now you've got your chest cavity. In the chest cavity is your heart, your lungs, and a lot of times it's really bloody and messy because, well, you've done your job well. And if you put an arrow through the lungs, they're pretty much jello at that point. If you've hit lower and hit heart, a lot of times the lungs are more full. Uh, it all depends on the impact on the arrow. But what you want to do now is you want to shove your arms all the way up to the throat. Your knife in one hand and your, you know, your, your off hand, your non-cutting hand, you're looking for uh, the, the, the throat. The inside of the throat, the, I guess it's the uh, the trachea, the windpipe, where you can grab it as, as far up as you can grab the windpipe. And then carefully, so you don't cut your hand, with your knife, cut through the windpipe on the inside. Not, not coming out or through, just cut the inside windpipe off. Um, then you'll be able to just, everything will just pull out in one fail swoop, you'll pull out Almost, there'll be very little, you might have to take your knife and, and, and cut a few things to get some things loose, but you can pretty much pull out all the organs. At that point, the, the hard part of that job is done. What I want to do then personally is I look for the heart. A lot of times the heart will still be in, in the sac, what we call the, or what's called the pericardium, and you'll have to cut that sac open to get the heart out and cut the top uh, blood vessels off the heart to get the heart out. And in your kit that we talked about in episode one, you should have at least two one-gallon Ziploc bags. At least two. I usually carry four. You take the Ziploc bag and put the heart inside it. And then I usually free up the liver and put the liver inside it, and I leave everything else. Some people want to take kidneys and stuff like that. You take anything else you want. I take the heart and liver. I take the one Ziploc bag, and I leave it open and just drop it inside a second Ziploc bag. By now, I've tried to clean my hands up a little bit. Ziploc that second Ziploc bag and just toss that up in the, in the chest cavity of the deer. It'll stay in there no problem for you usually. Um, that way you don't have to carry it with a separate hand. If you're worried about it, you can always take a small piece of your, uh, your pull-up rope, poke a hole in the Ziploc bag. Remember, we're not trying to seal this thing up right now. We're just trying to get it home. And you could, you could you know, t poke a hole through the ribs and, and, and tie it uh, to the inside of there. I've never had to do that. I've never had one fall out of me. I don't know why they do such a good job of staying in there. They just do. 
So they toss that inside the deer. We're going to get ready to drag the deer now. Um, but what I do before I even drag the deer, I've now done all the knife work I need to do with my deer, except for one more thing. People have different opinions on this. I think this is the perfect time to do this. I clean up my knife a little bit, and I remove the hawk glands. On the inside of the back legs, you'll see two tufts of fur. They're, they're unmistakable. And they have a, a, a hormone, pheromone secretion on them that you don't want in your meat. Uh, it can give off flavors to your meat. At this point, it makes a lot of sense to just cut the skin around those and just basically skin that piece off and just toss it. Some people use it to hang up around other deer stands to attract deer. I, I think that's what deer lures for. I, I think that deer, if deer can smell as well as we know they can, they can probably smell things like rotting flesh, and, and I don't think it's maybe the best use. I know some people have used them effectively, but I just leave that. Um, you can leave it there if you don't want to mess with it right now. And if it's really dark and I got a long drag, I might, I might myself leave it there. But to me, if you have the time and you can see and work well, it's a great time to remove it. It's just not going to come into contact with the meat. And I know that even if I use my hunting knife for butchering work when I get back, I know I'm going to be washing it before I do that because it's going to have blood stuck to it and other things, and I haven't got a chance to wash it well. So before I start butchering, I want to start out clean. Okay, So I know it will get washed. I won't forget. I won't mess up so I can take the glands off there. You don't Again, you don't have to, but it's my suggestion. The next thing is when you're cutting those glands off now or later, Be careful. Um, you're, 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 you're down uh, by the knee is, is, is not as bad, but there, there are you know other glands down closer to like the tendons. If you're removing those glands, make sure that you don't cut through any tendons. Uh, even at the knee level, the tendons and ligaments, you want to make sure you leave them intact because later when we hang the deer up, the deer's going to hang much better if everything's intact. So you want to be really careful about those uh those 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 tendons that you would use to hang hang the deer up later okay um now the drag a lot of people are harsh on people that rely on gps's i don't think you should rely on a gps but i think you should use a gps uh if you've gps marked your car or your vehicle getting that deer out is going to be a lot easier It's often the case when you put a deer down with a bow, if that deer travels, you know, even two, three hundred yards, you're now in a part of the, the woods, no matter how time, many times you've scouted, that you don't, you're not really familiar with, especially in the dark. And knowing the exact direction of your vehicle keeps you from dragging a deer in a circle for, for, you know, a couple hours, which I've actually seen people do. Um, <laughs> so know the direction of your vehicle. My belief is don't try to be a hero. If there's a place you can get your vehicle into that's, that's a close drag for you, drag the animal there, mark it with your GPS just to be safe, and then go get your vehicle and bring it to the deer. You know, Don't, don't go making a one-mile drag just because you think it makes you a badass. You've got a lot of work ahead of you for the rest of the evening. Let's get the animal in the vehicle as quickly as possible. Uh, and a little side note, go home. Go home when you're done. Don't drive around with a deer tied to the hood of your car showing it to people at the bar rooms like my grandfather used to do. Go home and get to work. Um, like I said, I use a five-foot piece of soft nylon rope, half inch, to drag my deer. And that's what I carry. And then I'll just find a, a stick or a branch usually and tie that to the center and grab that. And it just makes it nice. I know they have harnesses now and deer sleds and all kinds of stuff. 
This is what I've always used, and unless you know you're you're shooting you know big mule deer's or something like that, most white-tailed deer you should be able to drag pretty well across the forest floor uh, with just that. It's the stick especially is really nice if you're hunting with a buddy. If you get a stick that's about three foot long, both of you can grab one side of the stick, and two people can just make off with a deer pretty easy. It's tempting sometimes when you shoot smaller deer, especially does. You know, an animal that's maybe 90, 100 pounds on the hoof. By the time you've gutted it, you're looking at an animal that's like 65, 70 pounds, dead weight, uh, maybe 75 pounds. That's not that much weight. It's kind of tempting to throw that thing up over your shoulders and, and just walk out with it like you see the pictures of the hunters of old do. It's, it's probably not the best idea. While the risk is low in archery season, some dumbass could shoot you thinking you're a deer. Uh, the other thing is you're going to get blood and crap on you, and if you have cuts somewhere, there's always a chance for some level of infection. Deer carry ticks. I just don't think you should do that. I wouldn't, I mean, I wouldn't fault anybody that did. I'm just suggesting that it's better to drag them. Between ticks and fleas alone, um, it's just probably better that you not drape it over your shoulders. If you had two people and it was just easier because of where you were to pick a branch up and do the stretcher thing where you hang it by its feet, and you want to carry it that way, I, I would have a problem with that. I've never had to do any of that. Just a rope and drag them out. I will tell you that I always keep a come-along, which is something you can use to get. Basically, it's like a, a, a long, uh, usable, winch-like ratchet strap contraption that people use to do things like get a vehicle out of the mud if they don't have a, a regular winch. Unlike a winch, they don't need any source of power. It's a just a tink to tink to tink to tink type thing. And... If you happen to shoot a deer, especially in hilly country, down a really steep embankment, it might take a while, but if you're alone, it can save your bacon. Um, you can attach it to a tree, go down, attach it to the deer, ratchet the deer up to a location, and do that again a couple of times. This isn't something I carry with me, but I do keep in my vehicle. Uh, when my uncle shot his bear, that was the way. I mean, without that, we would have been done. Uh, it went down in a ravine. It was only about 30 yards to the top of the ravine. Once we got to the top of the ravine, we could get his Jeep up to it. But, I mean, this was a big bear, and bear are like all jelly when you shoot them. And there were three guys, and we couldn't move that thing up that hill uh, safely without that come along. So that's just a, a really good idea. Because the, the other option sometimes is to actually do the, the skinning and quartering and parting out the animal and bringing it out in pieces and doing all that work in the woods. And I prefer not to do that unless I have to. And that's where you're probably going to do most of your work with a knife and skip a lot of the sawing stuff, uh, unless you have a folding saw, which is always a good idea as well. So a come-along, at least in your vehicle, I really recommend. So when we get home, we're going to hang and skin the deer. If you have a walk-in cooler type situation, great. Hang it in there. If you have a basement and it's wintertime and it's nice and cool, where I'd say the temperature's not going to get above about 50 degrees, you can, you know, during the day and colder at night, you can hang it and you're great. Uh, during the winter, especially during rifle season in Pennsylvania, it was really cold outside. Sometimes we'd hang a deer just in a tree in the front of the yard for, for a day or two until we got around to processing it. In that case, we would leave the skin on if we did that. But get it hung up as, as, as swiftly as possible. My preference is to skin it as soon as possible. If, if I'm in a place like sometimes I hunt South Texas, um, where you're on a game ranch, and you shoot that deer, 
pull out your cell phone, call the, 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 the guide, and they'll come out and pick you up. And I can get that deer back and hung up while it's still steaming hot and skin that deer hot. That's what I want to do. If it's going to be stiff and cool by the time I get to skinning it, I'd I just I would prefer at that point go ahead and, and cool it all the way down. Get it in the cooler or hang it up in the cool basement, what have you, and get it cool and stiff and skin it the next day. It, it, it seems to me those are your two easiest options. Hot, they skin really easy, though it is a little bit more messy, a lot slippier with the fat and all, or good, good and chilled down. Skinning a deer that's stiff and cool but not cold and hasn't hung for a while, that's the, the hardest one. But you can do any of them. But get it skinned. Now, once I have a deer skinned, if it's possible, if I have a cooler or a cold enough climate... I am done for the evening, okay? It is time to go inside, fry up some deer heart with some butter and onions and garlic, um, have a nightcap, go to bed, and take care of it tomorrow. I want that deer cold before I start parting it out, if possible. This is not always possible. With where I live now, if I were to go out locally and shoot a deer, I can't do it. Unless I get really lucky on a really cold day and I can hang in the garage overnight, I can't do it. It's too warm. It's not safe to leave the meat out like that. So I'm going to have to skin it and part it out the way that I'm going to just tell you. If I have to skin and part it out, I'm going to leave it in the biggest pieces I can to work on the next day. And I'm going to put it into the cooler or refrigerator in pieces. And when you cool a deer, you want it dry. So you, I've seen you know deer hunters... They go out, they, they quarter a deer out, they throw it in one of those big old coolers, and then they cover it with ice. And by the time they get home, you know, two days later, the cooler's full of ice water and blood floating around everywhere. No. <laughs> no. Put your ice bags on top of the deer with, with it, and as it starts to melt, remove and replace. If you have a cooler or whatever, like a, a walk-in cooler or a big refrigerator, or converted keys or something like that, put, put the meat in there instead of using ice. You want the meat cool, and you want it to be allowed to dry. You want moisture to wick off of the, of the meat. But the reason I, I keep going on about this cold, the colder meat is, the more it will cut the way you want it to cut. It will make beautiful cuts for you when it's cold and stiff and hard. And it's very hard to cut meat that's still warm and flopping all around and jelloey. So with everything I'm about to tell you, understand that meat just cuts nicer if it's cold. So skinning is another one of those things. I can only tell you so much you know, on a podcast. I'll have a good link for you guys to see a deer skinned on YouTube if you've never seen it before. But what I like to do is I go ahead and cut the back feet off with a saw below the tendon joint. Okay, so this is not, at the, you're, you're leaving the shank on because there's meat there, but it's that last bit of foot, but make sure you don't cut the tendon when you do this either. So cut the two back feet off, and then take your knife and cut a slit behind the tendon, right? okay, your Achilles tendon, so to speak, right? So you cut a slit behind there, don't cut through the tendon. It makes your life hard. Now you can use a gambrel, which is a, a, a purpose-made tool, that you can buy that's just basically a triangle-shaped thing with two hooks on it, and you put it through both of those, and you can hoist the deer up. Uh, you can use a couple pieces of rope tied around, thrown over a beam to pull the deer up. When I was a kid, we had a basement uh, with just 
big oak beams exposed down in the basement, and we just took two great big nails, and we put them into the beams, and we would just lift the deer up and put that over top of the nail, and the nails would act like a gambrel and hold the deer up. However you want to, you hold it up. This is where you make kind of your first somewhat delicate cut. This is where you have to cut a ring around, you know, and you're up by that tendon again. You want to always be careful not to cut that tendon. Get ringed around and then start cutting down the leg, on the inside of the leg, down to that area where you've removed the, the penis or the, the udder, and you've kind of opened that up. So now we come down in a Y from both of those. We start working the, the skin off, and we work the skin down from there. And the rest of it you're going to have to look up. I will tell you, if you're not keeping the hide, a lot of times you go ahead and once you've got enough hide that you're not going to tear through it, poke a hole in the hide, it makes a handle, and you can, you can grab that to put pressure and pull down. If you're doing it right, as you're pulling against the skin, if you have a sharp knife, when it hangs up, if you just touch where the skin meets the, the muscle, it just, just comes off beautifully. Your next kind of hard point is always as you get down around the shoulders, There's some tricks to that, but usually what I do is you just come all the way down the, um, the breastbone and open that up and then come down the inside of the arms. And a lot of times if it gets really tight coming around the shoulders, if you cut the skin along the, the, the backbone through the neck up to the back of the head and kind of split it off that way, it, it'll, it'll untighten for you. But this all depends on whether or not you're trying to save the, the hide or not. Generally, I just don't save deer hides. I, I, I know we should use every scrap and whatever, but it's so much easier if I'm not worried about it, you know, and you just get that done. When you get the hide down to where you've kind of got to the deer's jaws, right, you, you've pulled the hide all the way to the base of the head, this is where if you want to be a hero and you have a good knife, you can cut the flesh all the way around, you can find a joint, and you can just pop the head off, basically. I just grab a bone saw or a, ha a good hacksaw, and I cut the flesh down to the bone with the knife, and I just take the hacksaw and cut the head off. That that hide, cape, head, all that stuff to me, unless it's a buck and you want the antlers off it, it's had it. It's to be thrown away, done away with, fed to the coyotes, compost to whatever it is that you do with it. Uh, if it's a buck, you might want to cut the cape off the head, skin it off, and, and boil it to, to save to do like a uh, an African style mount. Or you might want, you know, if you're saving the cape for a mount, it's a totally different scenario with skinning. If you're not a skilled skinner, I'd pay somebody to do it for you. If you if you want the cape for a head mount or whatever, don't try doing that yourself for the first time. And if you ever want to be able to do it. Practice with a deer you don't give a damn about. Skin out a doe like you were going to cape it out, okay? That's different. I'm not going into it today. That's going to be it for skinning. It just doesn't translate well uh, into an audio pod podcast. But once we have that done, what we now have is this deer hanging. It's got no head. It's got two little tufts of, of uh, hide on, the, on the, the shanks or the hams way up high that we'll worry about later. It's got the skin all the way off. The only thing left now we have is probably the front feet. I've just found it easier to leave those front feet on and skin that, that front shoulder all the way down to the wrist and then just cut the skin off and just leave a little glove-like on the deer. The reason I like to do that is until I've got the deer completely skinned, having that front hoof there like a handle... It's really nice to be able to turn it, pull it, contort it, have somebody grab onto it for you or what have you. So now I've got what looks like the deer's got gloves on its front feet and its little hoofs are sitting there. I grab my saw and I cut those off now. 
I just think it's easier to cut them off now than after what we're going to do next. Because the deer's got all this weight and mass left on it. You grab the hoof, zip, 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 saw goes right through. The feet have had it. If your dogs are like mine, you throw the foot to them. They chew on that for a couple hours and leave you alone so you can finish butchering your deer. All right, so now we've done that. So now we've got a deer. We've got an open cavity. We've got the legs hanging. We're standing facing the breast of the deer. We're facing it like we were underneath changing the oil, so to speak, if we were laying on our back and it was standing up. We take one of the legs. I don't know why. I usually start with the, the leg I can grab with my left arm, which would be the deer's left leg. Pull it away from the body. And you take your knife and you cut behind uh, the leg, right where it joins the body, behind the scapula. And when you cut like that, there's no bones, there's no joints, it's just muscles. You cut the front leg straight off. I've now got the front leg, set that to the side. Repeat and do the other leg that, that same way. I've got my two front legs off whole. If I'm, if I want, if my meat's not really cold and I'm gonna put this in the refrigerator, I just take that whole leg just like that, throw it in the fridge. Or throw it in a cooler. Okay? Or if I have a walk-in cooler I'm working with still, hang them up in there. And let that meat really get cold and get nice and firm for me. Okay, the next thing that I do, I'll remove the flank steaks. So now you buy flank steak to make fajitas with. What that is, is if it was a pig, you'd call it bacon. Remember that stomach we opened up? The flaps? Okay, we're going to come up and cut right along the base of the ribs, all the way to the backbone, and all the way down, and take them off like two pieces of little bacon. They don't get excited. Deer flanks make very crappy bacon. There's just not much meat on them. Some people will boil these up and give them to the dogs. Some people will cook them on the grill. Some people will trim them. Some people will use them to make burger. There's a lot of things you can do with them, but there's not much meat. And the, a young doe is going to have almost no, nothing there. It's really, really thin, but not much to trim off. A buck, a bigger buck or an older doe, there's a little bit of meat there. It actually is wonderful meat. It's just a bit of work. And so, therefore, a lot of people just cut the silver sheen off it and throw it in the grinder and make burger out of it. It's up to you what you want to do with the flanks. But if I'm going to be processing the deer later, I lay them out flat and I put them into the cooler. I don't wad them up in a little ball, okay? The next thing is I want to debone the loins. So, on the deer, people say tenderloin a lot of times when they're not talking about the tenderloin. They're talking about the loin, and this is what I'm talking about, the loin. This is where chops come from. If you were doing a, a, a pig, you'd call them pork chops, or ribeye steaks come from from a cow. But there's also what you'd call a rump roast. This is the pelvis. And it's pretty clear where that pelvis starts, and it's where the two hams join together to the pelvis. And then just below that pelvis, you can see a very easy point where you can go in and cut, and you basically fillet the loin. And you take the, the, the back loin to the rib loin. The whole thing is a big, long strip all the way down to the neck, and take as much of the neck piece as you can with it, and you get this big, long strip. Lay that out flat, put it in your cooler to cool to be cut later. If it's too long to do that with it, cut it in half. Make one swift cut, cutting it in half. Then you have two pretty long ones. Put that in the refrigerator or the cooler and let it firm up. Okay. <sighs> Repeat that on the other side. So now we've taken the loins off of the deer. Um, once we've taken the loins off of the deer, we're going to then cut the spare ribs. So we get our saw out, and we just cut the rib cage off on both sides. Crack anything that's left holding together in the center. You've got two slabs of ribs. 
again, into the cooler, let them cool down to work on them later. Um, so we've got what you call spare ribs. Again, don't get too excited about deer ribs. There's not a lot of meat on them. Uh, there's actually quite a bit that can be cut off them, but if you're thinking about cooking them up like, uh, like pork ribs, it's, it's, there's not much there. Um, and then what we have is we have this pathetic-looking long backbone with almost no meat on it worth worrying about anymore. And at a point, we hit that rump roast. What I'll do then is I take my saw, right where the meat's still on the, you know, where you go from having meat to not having meat, and I cut through the backbone there, and that whole piece is just a big piece of bone. I'll usually take my saw and cut that up into manageable sizes and set my bones aside. I'm going to tell you what to do with the bones in a minute. Um, but now what I've got is the two legs joined to the pelvis. I've got a rump roast and two hams. Now I'm just going to take that grab both hams, one in each hand, and lift it up off whatever's holding it and just take it down as a unit. Uh, a lot of people will go ahead and take the rump off while it's hanging. I just find this much easier. It's not that heavy for one man to handle to work on this on a cutting board on a table. I lay that flat down on the table with the, in, you know, it would be the inside facing up and you'll see two creases. This is where like if you have your, you know, your legs and it comes up to the groin, the creases in your groin, that's the creases right there. And if you push them down and cut into those creases on that angle of that crease, just follow that crease like you're tracing a line, you'll get right down to where the ball joint from the femur, the big, the big leg bone, goes into the pelvis. You take your knife and you cut around that ball joint and separate it from the pelvis and make the cleanest, straightest cut you can on both sides of that ham and you take the ham off. And we'll have, if you did it right, especially if the meat has some time to cool, you'll have a nice clean flesh cut, uh, clean line, and then a ball sticking out, and then the rest of the leg and the bottom shank on it. Goes in the cooler, repeat on the other side. Then the only thing left you're looking at is, is what you call a rump roast, a bone-in rump roast. And on a normal deer, it'll be about a foot long, about nine inches wide. It'll have meat on both sides of it. It's a very similar cut of meat to the loins we took off, but there's some different shapes and funky stuff in there that deboning it's a little bit more difficult. Put that in the refrigerator. You have now parted your deer out. Now, I would part it out into somewhat bigger pieces if I wanted to let it cool, period. But if it's had enough time to cool that I can make clean cuts on the meat, I'll go ahead and debone the loins and all that stuff like I told you, and I'll, I'll wait on the legs. So that whole deer is now stacked in a refrigerator, takes up way less space than you think it would. Um, so let's talk about uh, what we do next. So the next thing is I'll, I'll, I'll take care of the heart and liver if I haven't already eaten the heart. Usually the heart is something I eat the day that I shoot the deer. It's just kind of a, a ritual with me, not a spiritual thing, not trying to be a Native American, just I like them. And uh, they, they do fine when they're fresh, so why not go ahead and, and, and enjoy that that evening or the next day for lunch or something like that. We're going to debone and handle the meat as we wish at this point. Okay, We're also going to trim excess tallow. When you think of, you look at deer, a lot of people say, look at all that fat. And there's usually very little fat on deer. What you see is tallow. It's the harder type of fat. The, the, the fat that we're usually thinking of is more like a yellow to a whitish jelly. It's really soft and it kind of floats. And it's, on deer, it's almost never in the muscle. It always floats on top, between the skin and the tallow. Um, so it's usually not much of an issue. You might trim a little bit of that off. There's not really much that I, I do with that. I kind of discard that, that jelly-like fat. I've never found any value in it. The tallow, I just cut it off. So wherever it's excessive or thick and easy to remove, I'll just cut it off. And again, this is so much easier to do 
um, if the, the the meat's cold. And I'll just put that all in a big tub. And later on, I'm going to render that. And I'll render that out. I'll talk about rendering in just a bit. Uh, but that's that's what I'm going to do next is uh, is get the tallow off as I start trimming the meat. Most of the time, it's easier to trim a lot of the outer tallow off, like the whole ham when it's still got the bone in it, than it is to debone it and then try to trim the tallow off of it. There's no reason not to. Tallow doesn't do much when it's cooked on meat for the flavor of the meat. All you end up with is this hard, gristly substance at the end of your you know, meal that doesn't really do anything. It's not like the inner muscular fat on a nice marbled ribeye. So there's no reason not to remove as much of it as you can without really you know, damaging your meat. So the tallow is something that I kind of just keep a running bin of it until I'm ready to render it as I'm doing all my boning and cutting up and, and other things. So let's start with the shanks. So now I've got... Two whole front legs and two whole back legs. Down at the bottom of them, down in the, like, we would be your forearm and your calf. There's what you call a shank. Um, for a long time, I would debone those. I would cut all the sinew and, and everything out of them and, you know, get the meat all cleaned up and throw it into my pile of meat to be ground. There's nothing wrong with that. It just takes a lot of time, and there's a lot of work to do to get that done. What I've since gone to doing is I take my bone saw and I just cut the shanks off. I put all four of them packaged up together in the freezer and I label it shanks. And my number one thing that I'll do with those is make a stew. And instead of doing all that work with a knife on a raw piece of meat to get all that stuff out of there, I put all four of them into the stew. Uh, I brown them and then I make my I stew them on the bone. And before I add my vegetables, when they're, they, they've gotten nice and soft, I take them out and use a knife, and it comes right off the bone clean. And then cleaning out the, the parts that you don't want to eat, the sinews and the, it's easy. It just comes, you can do it with your fingers. You don't even need a knife. Meat goes back in, vegetables go in, and you know potatoes go in while you're doing the meat because they take a little longer. Stew it till everything's pulled together, and you got your stew. And since it was cooked with the bones, and the bones were roasted first and browned, it's wonderful. You get a little bit of the, the marrow action going on there and things like that. Some people worry about CWD, chronic wasting disease. And, yeah, the risk of that would come from the, you know, the tallow, or not the tallow, the, the marrow. Um, and that's why people have gotten really into boning everything now. Uh, personally, I think that we're a little bit overreactionary to that. I'm not worried about getting that from a deer that looks healthy. If you are, you can avoid that by taking the meat off the bone. But I am not afraid to use deer bones, um, and I'll get to what I do with the bones here in just a minute. Okay, um, the flanks and the ribs. So the flanks, um, it, it's it's up to you. I generally remove the trimmings and grind them. If the flanks are substantial, if it's a bigger deer, I will throw the whole flanks, once I've trimmed as much of the tallow and, and, and off, putting stuff off of them as I can, I'll season them up, throw them straight on a grill. And, and they are fantastic. The meat, it's, it's deer bacon, right? Or deer belly, you know, instead of pork belly, deer belly. It's just, there's usually layers upon layers of tallow in there, and it's usually easier just to take all of the, the meatier pieces off and, and throw that in your pile of meat to grind for later. Uh, the ribs, the stuff between the ribs is all but useless. But there is quite a bit of meat that kind of floats on the ribs, the, like where the pectoral muscle would be type thing. And it's usually pretty easy to just cut that meat off the outside of the ribs. 
Um, on the inside of the ribs will be, remember those two curtains, that diaphragm? That's a perfectly good piece of muscle. Cut that off. All of that I take aside, put to the grinder. The ribs then, I'll then cut down the middle a time or two till I have chunks of rib. That goes to my bone pile. Okay, so now I've got a just bone pile that's just kind of building up. The front leg, I've all, now I've removed the shank. So I have the lower shoulder, which is like this little, you know, little bicep muscle, and the upper shoulder that's the, the scapula, the shoulder blade. With just using a knife usually is all you need. You cut a cut around that joint and disjoint that. If it's giving you problems, take your bone saw and cut it, cut it into two pieces. Now I've got two shoulder roasts from each arm. The lower shoulder roast and the upper shoulder roast. The lower is really a great roast to just cook like that whole as a roast. So a lot of times I just put that, here's my thing. Once I cut a piece of meat, I can't put it back together. If I defrost that shoulder and decide I want to do something with a bone, I want to make stew out of it, pull the bone out of it, brown the bone, use it toward making my stock, cut up and cube that meat, I can do it. If I cut up and cube it now, I can't ever put it back the way that it was. So I'll take those two lower shoulders individually wrapped up, they're going to go into the freezer and be marked lower shoulder, bone in, okay, and the date that they were put in the freezer. The upper shoulder, to me, is just a pain in the ass. It's It's got a lot of stuff going on. To me, I bone that out, clean up the meat, get as much of the silver sheen, which you'll know what it is as soon as you see it if you've never seen it before off of it. So I get as, all the meat that I can off of it without getting stupid about trying to pick it off with a toothpick or something, cube that up, and throw it in my pile for grinding. I take the shoulder blade bones, and they go into the bone pile. All right? Um, now, I've got these two long loins or four long pieces of loin that are the rib loin all the way down to the back loin. These long, round pieces of meat. What I generally do is look at them and say, this is a big enough piece for two people to have a meal if they're not eating just deer. I mean, deer, salad, side, the whole thing. This is enough to feed two people. I cut that as a single piece. Again, what I what I put away uncut can be cut later, but what I put away cut can't be put back together later. So what most people do with that that back loin is we call them chops, and they cut them about one inches thick, and or call them breakfast steaks or whatever you want to call them. Cut them about one inches thick and say, okay, well four to a person, so eight to a bag. That's two people to a bag. Bag them up and, and label them however they choose to. Again, I can't put it back together. So if I leave the piece that I would, so an eight inch long piece, I could get eight one inch pieces from, right? If I freeze it that way, when I take it out to cook it, how much work does it take after it defrosts to set it down on a cutting board and make eight cuts? It, it takes a couple seconds. But that piece of meat actually makes a really, really, really good, um, like little, uh, steak to cook whole. I can cook that thing whole and then cut it. So depending on how I want to prepare it, I may want it whole. I also might say, you know what? I'm going to take two of them out. I am not going to cut them in one-inch pieces. I'm going to cut them in quarter-inch pieces. I'm going to roll them in flour, and I'm going to fry them like chicken fried steak. And that will make your mama cry it's so good. It's, it's just unbelievable. So by leaving it in a, you know, a, a portion-sized piece, I can now decide that I want to take that and do many things later. Maybe I decide, you know what, been a while since I made biltong, cut that thing long ways, and the whole thing's biltong. Kind of evil to make such a good quality piece of meat in a biltong, but it makes good biltong, I'll tell you that. 
Um, also makes good jerky, sliced thin, like the chop. So you can always jerk meat or biltong meat later if you put it away frozen. So by leaving, again, the biggest piece you can, still enough to be portioned to the way you'll use it, just makes sense to me. The rump roast. It depends. Mainly what I do is I wrap it up, label it, and throw it in the freezer hole. One whole rump roast, both sides. And then I'm going to make, I'll, I'll do a roast with that. And it's a beautiful roast. Or if I want burger, if I want meat for sausage, or I want meat for biltong, I'll debone it and part it out to biltong pieces, or I'll debone it and part it out for the grinder. And if it's going to be for the grinder, into the tub that's storing up all the grind meat, uh, it goes. But the roast, again, is really a nice roast to make whole. Slow roasted, braised a little bit on the outside, uh, or, or seared a little bit on the outside, then, then slow cooked in an oven, cast iron skillet until it falls off the bone. Uh, if you do it that way, covered, you keep it moist, it won't dry out, it's outstanding that way. It's not a good cut of meat to just throw on the grill. It's probably your best piece of meat to go ahead and grind up if, you, if you're looking for ground meat. Back legs. Um, what I'll usually do with the back legs is I lay the back leg down on the side where the bone's closest to the surface, take a knife and cut down to the bone, and then I just debone it. Just take that whole back leg bone out, knee joint and all, that goes into the bone pile. Kind of put it back together, or you can go ahead and muscle it out. It's your choice here. Muscling it out makes the next part easy if you want to make steaks. So muscling it out means you just basically separate the two main muscle groups in it, so you end up with two big chunks. If At that point, it's probably warmed up some. Get it back in the cooler. Get the meat good and cool, cold again, almost frozen. Then lay it down on your cutting board and cut about one-inch steaks out of it. It's a great way to do it. So now I've got steaks that are like round steaks. These grill beautifully. It's probably the best piece of meat to grill other than the loin on a deer. Or I can cut it into larger chunks. And put that away as a roast, and I can always, again, cut it up and do other things with it later. Or if I'm looking for sausage, let's say I want to make sausage. This is a big, it's, it's the majority of the meat that I'm going to get, so I could grind it up for sausage. Or I could use it for biltong. It's, it's up to you how you want to use it, but traditionally, this is usually cut into steaks. In my family, it didn't seem like people understood the value of thicker cuts of meat, We cut very thin steaks as I got older and learned about, you know, not overcooking meat, not ruining meat, leaving a little bit pink in the center. I try to cut these at about three quarters to one inch thick, my steaks off of these. Um, so that's the main thing. I, my back legs usually go to steaks, if you haven't been able to tell by now. So now I've got this big pile of bones. It might take a couple batches, but what I like to do now is take all those bones and put them into the oven on about 350 degrees and just roast them till they're good and brown and then I make bone stock from them. If I don't want to make that much bone stock at once, I'll go ahead and brown them all. I'll cut them wherever they need to be cut uh, to be uh, to, to fit. I'll bag them up, wrap them up, and put them in the freezer and label them as roasted deer bones. But I go ahead and, while I'm doing all this crap, it's just easy to go ahead and roast them. And that way when they come out later, they're all ready to go. Occasionally I'll be nice and throw the dogs one or two big bones because they like to chew on them. But I'll make a great bone stock out of those. It's fantastic. Um, it's just incredibly good for you. So we'll talk about how you make bone stock in the next show. Uh, and then the tallow, I'll render all that tallow out. 
Now, here's some rules um, for cutting, grinding, and some other things like that. Again, I keep saying this, but colder is better, especially with your grinder almost frozen. If you have meat to the point where it's just starting to freeze on the outside, but it's not frozen you know, more than an eighth of an inch thick or less, um, it will cut beautifully and it will grind Beautifully, It's not going to freeze or burn in that short period of time. So this is where you can take meat that you're going to grind, lay it out as thin layer as possible, and set it in the freezer for a couple hours before you grind it. It will grind so much better, trust me. Um, keep your equipment cold too. Keep your knives cold. Keep your, your grinder, the blade and the part that screws off where you can clean the blade of your grinder. Throw that sucker in the freezer with the meat. And put it on the grinder right before you grind. It's amazing what that does. I remember the first time I tried to grind meat, I tried to grind warm meat, and I was making this this jello basically. And I didn't. The grinder is broken. You know, the old man comes in and says, "That's you know, you're doing it wrong. Let me tell you what to do." So trust me, keep the meat cold. Clean as you go. So as you're getting from piece to piece to piece, clean up your workspace. Otherwise, you start to build up layers of fat, tallow, and blood, and it gets really messy, and it's hard to hold, and then your hands get slippery. And when your hands get slippery, you cut yourself. Ask me how I know. Okay, I've been doing this since I was 13 years old. And so the stuff I'm telling you, I know this is not the most action-oriented show. It might be a little bit awkward because I'm trying a lot of visual stuff and audio here. But trust me, I've been doing this since I'm 13 years old. And I think I just turned 43. Uh, I think that's right, is I just turned 43. So that's 30 years, right? That's, that's a long time to be doing something. So I, I can trust me, if you clean as you go, not only is there less of a mess to deal with, you're less likely to cut yourself. Uh, it, I like using cutting boards, but when I'm dealing with things like the great big back two-leg quarters or whatever or a whole leg, I just have like a big piece of clean plywood. Right, like three quarter inch clean plywood, and I lay that down on the table so I can work with it. Uh, I don't worry about dulling the knife if it hits the plywood or whatever. And when I'm done with that, I give it a really good scrubbing with bleach water, and I set it somewhere dry. And before I before I put meat back on it again, I rinse it off with bleach water, and I've never had a problem. It's it's the easiest way that I know. And then you go to regular cutting boards once you get down to your smaller pieces. That's just worked really well for me. Um, another thing is no Ziploc baggies, guys. It, it, it just, I've seen so much meat ruined in Ziploc bags. Either good quality commercial grade freezer, um, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, what do you call them? Vacuum sealer bags and vacuum sealer meat. Or if you don't have a vacuum sealer, good quality butcher paper, double wrapped, taped, labeled. And, You know, make your meats nicely laid out so that they're not kind of all mangled together in a ball. Laid out as flat and thin as possible and, and, and freeze them. And even if you have to make maybe do a couple batches in the freezer at a time so as you make room, so that when you are moving stuff and stacking, it's already hard. So you don't have things mashed down, flat, gushed out. You want it solid and frozen well and organized well. Label everything. You'll go, I'll, I'll remember that that's a rump roast. No, you won't. No, you won't. Label everything. And it is a really good idea to then sit down with a notebook. You keep like a little inventory book and write down, you know, how many, because you're going to probably eat some right away, how much you have of everything and the, with the, you know, the date above it. And every time you take something out, 
Pull out your notebook and cross out that thing. This isn't so if the zombies come, you know how much deer meat you have on hand. I'll tell you what this is for. So that you, when you open your, your, your notebook, you go, you know what? I have a back leg roast from that deer from six months ago that I haven't got, a, that's still in there. And because it got buried, I don't see it. So I know to look for it and go ahead and use that before it gets too old. That's what that, and if you shoot, you know, five, six, seven deer a year, that's really, really beneficial. So label and date everything and keep kind of a, a journal of what's in the freezer. Uh, I think that's a good for all the things that are in the freezer, but especially deer meat. You have so much effort into this, so much work into this. It's such high-quality protein to, to think that, you know, next year when you finally get around to cleaning out the freezer, you're going to find that there was this beautiful piece of deer meat that ended up in the bottom. It got twisted sideways, got yanked open and ripped, and it's freezer burnt now because you forgot about it or something like that. It's, to me, after, again, all this work we've done is just too valuable. Um, now, in the final episode, we're going to talk about cooking deer, making jerky, sausage, biltong, all that stuff. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I mean, I realized as I was doing it, it was kind of clunky and awkward. I thought it would be a much easier to do show because I'm just talking about what I've done all these years. Um, and I know this show is not everybody's cup of tea. You know, there's a lot of regular listeners like, man, this is a lot of talk about cutting up a deer. But this is a skill, guys. This is a skill. And I'll tell you what, if you learn to cut up a deer, you can cut up a pig. You can cut up a cow, you can cut up a squirrel, you can cut up a rabbit. If you learn to cut up and part out a deer, you can do this with any animal. And you might think it's something that, well, I really wouldn't want to do, but I'll tell you there's something very therapeutic about it, especially when you have the equipment you need, you can keep the meat nice and cold like it has to be, you're not in a hurry. I mean, this one thing I didn't say today, if you can hang meat, Or, or dry, you know, dry age in a cool environment, deer meat for seven days before it goes in the freezer, or you cook it, great. If it starts turning a little black on the outside, that's when it's about right. You start getting a lactic acid breakdown in the muscle fibers. It gets so much more tender, so much more flavorful. It's not going to hurt anything. It's going to make everything better. So if you, you know, once you get that deer taken apart, And into a cooler freezer, as long as it's not going to be wet in there, you can work on these cuts of meat today, those cuts of meat tomorrow, slowly build up your tub, then get all the grinding done. It doesn't all have to happen today. You know, if you have a few days to do this over, it's, it's a very relaxing thing because when you're, when you're being that intimate with something like meat, it pulls you out of the everyday stuff. And it allows you to just focus on, I have to focus, I have to do this right. I don't want to make a bad cut because I, this animal gave its life so that I can eat today. So it becomes important to you. And it, it's, it's not like when you're processing a hundred chickens or something, you're just trying to get it done. It's a, a big deal. It's you know a couple times a year thing that you're going to have all of this meat for this long period of time and, and you've earned the right to it. And it's, it's somewhat ritualistic. And you also have to pay attention because you can cut yourself. So it, 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 to me, it's a lot like the way reloading is therapeutic. Like you have to focus on the task at hand. You, you can't be distracted by other things. And the funny thing is, no matter how um, much your family is the kind of uh, family that tries to like pull you away from what you're doing, it's kind of like going to the bathroom. No one bugs you when you're there unless you're a mom and you have three girls that want to get in. You know, but if dad's, you know, in the can reading, you know, the Sunday paper, pretty much everything leave dad alone. When you when your when your arms are covered in blood and you got a knife in your hand, 
right? And a dead animal that you killed hanging up uh, from a ceiling? People tend to leave you alone. And I like that. I like being left to my task. So I would challenge you, if you're a hunter and you're the guy that is always, you know, just field-dressed your deer, threw it in the back of the truck, drove by the butcher's place, dropped it off, paid him $35, $50, bucks, whatever, and come back the next day and pick your meat up, all, all, all parted out and made into a burger or whatever, try doing this yourself. Um, it's one of those hard skills that you'll have for the rest of your life. It, it, it really is. Um, we did two pigs in uh, West Virginia at the, at the summer event for Perma Ethos. And Kevin and I had never butchered a pig like that. I've, I've done a lot of feral hogs, but they're, you know, 90, 100, 110 pounds. I mean, this is a 350-pound pig. Um, never worked with an animal like that. It was some challenges. But in the end, it was the same. In the end, it was the same thing. And when we ground a, a lot of that pig to make sausage, we had this great big half-horsepower grinder that Kevin had, and I had cut up all the meat myself uh, for the grinder and, and cleaned it. And I'll remember who it was. We had somebody that kind of took charge of the class on grinding the meat and was talking about how when the grinder's done, you have to clean all of the... Uh, you know, the silver sheen and, and what off the grinder because it'll build up on the grinder. And when he pulled it out to show them, there was nothing on it because I had, and I, I mean, I went through that meat. I did a, I think we did 120 pounds between the two pigs that was for grind. 120 pounds, I went through in like 40 minutes. And there was, the grinder was clean. There was nothing on it. And uh, that was, it was, you know, when a guy's like, look at this. I was, I was kind of proud of that. There's, honestly, there's not a lot of people that aren't professional meat cutters that can do that. Um, but it's just from years and years of practice. And I think when you do anything well, you, you take pride in it. And I think, you know, people talk about Americans are too proud. I don't think we're proud of the right things. I think being proud of something you can do well that takes effort is a good type of pride to have. We don't need to have false pride. We need to have a real pride. And, and I think this is one way that you can start to develop more of that for yourself. So, Give it a shot, and if today wasn't your your cup of tea and you, you, you kind of fought through this episode, thanks for doing that, guys. I mean, I try to do so much varied stuff on this show that I know sometimes it's going to be just like a show I'm not really interested in, but sometimes you'll listen anyway. And, and man, I appreciate it when you guys do that. I appreciate everyone out there. I promise you the next one we do on cooking, whether you like to hunt deer or not, you're going to like, because everything I'm going to tell you to do with a deer, you can do with lamb, or you can do with beef, or you can do with anything. I'm going to make you hungry in the next episode. That will be coming next week. Got a great interview with uh, someone for you tomorrow. Uh, we'll talk more about that tomorrow when we come on the air. But again, thank you for listening to this episode. If it was clunky here and there, again, I apologize. Did my best with a kind of a difficult, technical, uh, and long show. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico helping you live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.